0: Hey everyone, this is Brendan here, the Sunflower Socialist. I'm just going to do a little prologue here to say that this episode was re- recorded a few weeks ago back in May, uh, but I was unable to get it out because I didn't know if I should post it when I planned to because that was about the time that the protest following the death of George Floyd began. And I'm currently working on an episode about that in particular about the protests here in Kansas City and talking about my experiences there and where things seem to be headed from my perspective, but that's... uh complicated to talk about. I will just say that in this episode, I do also talk about that I'm running for a delegate, be a delegate for Bernie Sanders. And that is actually dated information. That election has since happened. And I was elected to be a delegate. So I will be in, if all goes well, going to Milwaukee or representing Kansas through another means if the, del- if the convention is not held in person. But thanks so much, uh, and there will be a new episode out very soon talking about the protest. Hello comrades, and welcome to the Sunflower Socialist Podcast. I apologize I haven't recorded an episode in quite a while, and I say that every time, but I think this has been potentially the longest break I've had between episodes since my last episode came out in January, and it is now May. But I hope to be making them on a more regular basis from here on out because I'm no longer in school. If you'd like to help financially support me, please do go check out my Patreon and give me some money there. I still am at zero patrons, so please do support me if you can. So today's topic is this question that a lot of us are really grappling with on the left, and that is, should we vote for Joe Biden, or should we vote for Howie Hawkins, or Gloria Lariva, or another third-party candidate? Should we do a clean break now? Where, What should we do about the presidential election in November? And I think this is a really important question that we need to be having, and, you know, we were not expecting to be in this position. We were expecting that we'd be able to vote for Bernie in November, But sadly, that has not come to pass. Biden will be the Democratic nominee, whether we like it or not, uh, and I personally do not like it. But the question remains, should we vote for Joe Biden? I think answering this question is a lot more difficult than it looks on its face, because there's a lot of things we need to take into consideration with this. For one, you know, the exact conditions of the election itself, and then also what the other options if we don't vote for Joe Biden are, and are those really more desirable than voting for Joe Biden? So I'm going to look at the arguments on both sides of the case here and let you know where I stand. So those who advocate for voting for Joe Biden say socialist, we may not like it, Joe Biden isn't a socialist, but we really have to vote for Joe Biden anyways, this is what they say, because of the Supreme Court, because Trump is so bad he has to be removed from office no matter who we remove him with, and Joe Biden may not be what we like, but he's at least preferable to Donald Trump. You know, there is some validity to these questions, I think, to some extent. Uh, The Supreme Court is definitely an issue that concerns me a bit, especially after the Janus ruling in 2018, which gutted public sector unions in a lot of ways. And I think we really need to be concerned that they will not just apply the Janus ruling, which set a precedent for the public sector, to the private sector as well. And that greatly concerns me. You know, should we really allow Donald Trump to have another appointee to the Supreme Court? Because it's the conservative justices that are admittedly, leading this judicial charge against labor in this country. Now, it should be noted the Supreme Court has never been on the side of the working class. It's always been on the side of the ruling class, and it really was established for that purpose. There's a reason why, in the early 20th century, the Socialist Party and Socialist activists were advocating the abolition of Marbury v. Madison. I think it's important to remember that the Supreme Court has absolutely too much power in our society and in our government right now, and we're going to have to come up with ways of grappling with this immense amount of power that the Supreme Court holds, or else it's going to be very difficult for us to implement any of the changes that we want to see. You know, of course, we have to deal with the same issues with the Constitution itself, and that's why I am an advocate for constitutional reform, and if not a completely new Constitution in and of itself. But that's, I think, a side issue, because that's not going to get done in this election, and getting those things done will require a lot more than elections, let's be real. So as long as we have the Supreme Court, we are going to have to Manipulate it, so to speak, to the best of our ability. And we can't, we're going to have to get over this notion of we can't have a politicized court. The Supreme Court has always been and will always be politicized, and we're going to have to politicize the f out of it. But will Joe Biden really appoint justices that would be more friendly to our moves? Some say yes. We did see, you know, centrist, center right Democrats appoint progressive justices in the past. Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan were both appointed by President Barack Obama, who was maybe slightly center-left, but I would certainly not call him progressive, and center-right Democrat Bill Clinton, who is undoubtedly center-right, appointed uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is viewed by a lot of progressives and even some on the left as being, you know, the greatest judicial mind in the history of the world, or something like that. I personally don't have the same sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, fetish for Ruth Bader Ginsburg I think that talk of her being the notorious RBG is a little ridiculous. But, you know, the fact I bring her up is actually another important point. She is likely to be the next Supreme Court justice to be replaced, unless by some miracle, which she appears to be performing, manages to live forever. But, you know, that is a very serious concern that I have. You know, and if Trump does get in, he would appoint another Merrick Garland or another Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And that is deeply concerning, on many issues, uh, the biggest issue that concerns me the most just because of my uh, my primary interests is labor rights, but you know, also women's rights, LGBTQ rights, all these issues are directly affected by the Supreme Court, and we need to be very aware of the impact that this would have if Trump were able to appoint more hard-right, far-right conservative justices to the Supreme Court. I think we need to be very concerned about that. But would Biden really appoint better justices? And that's where I'm unsure. At the end of Obama's term... After uh, Justice Antonin Scalia died, he was committed to appointing Merrick Garland, who is a moderate who had actually been suggested by Mitch McConnell as the replacement for Antonin Scalia, and it failed epically. The Republicans were not going to let Obama get another justice because they had control of the Senate, and they were going to wait until they could... Get back the White House and appoint whatever justices they wanted. That was always their goal, and I think we do need to ask ourselves if Republicans maintain control of the Senate, which they might. I hope they don't, but they might. Would they even allow a Biden administration to get it through? And I don't think they would. Mitch. That's been Mitch McConnell's entire strategy from the get-go: hold things up as long as he can until he gets what he wants. And I don't think he'd be willing to work with an a Biden administration. And <laughs> You know, it's kind of ridiculous that Biden thinks he would. Biden is running on this whole bipartisanship, let's restore rationality to government, and it's an absolute fantasy that he'll be able to do this. You know, I don't think that Biden or any other Democrat would be able to work with Mitch McConnell or with the Republicans, except under maybe very severe circumstances, and even then, because they have no intention of working with anyone to the left of Mussolini. At the end of the day, that's... They have no intention of working with anyone who doesn't want to do exactly what they want to do. Uh, That's been their whole strategy since Obama took office, and it has not changed. So they would not work with a Biden administration any better than they worked with Obama, any better than they work with the House Democrats right now. It's an utter delusion. So would... Biden be able to appoint anyone to the Supreme Court or get his Supreme Court justices passed, not without a Democratic majority. Even if he had a Democratic majority in the Senate, I think he would still probably choose the most moderate options. I think maybe he would bring back Merrick Garland as his first choice for the Supreme Court because it's the right thing to do. You know, even Bernie was saying during the 2016 primaries that if he's the nominee, Obama should rescind his nomination of Merrick Garland, and wait until after the election, because Bernie was thinking, no, I do not want Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court. He's too moderate and he's too right-wing, even though he's a centrist. And I would agree with Bernie's position on that one. We're not going to see Biden appoint some staunch progressive to the Supreme Court. We're not going to see him appoint Cornell West to the Supreme Court or someone like that. And I would note Cornell West would be an awesome Supreme Court pick. But that's just not going to happen. It's just not realistic. Joe Biden has no intention of doing that. He's going to want to appoint more moderates. Now, they might be slightly better on some of these very divisive issues, especially uh, issues of women's rights and LGBT rights, but I don't think he'll be as favorable to the issues related to labor. It's just not that realistic. I don't think that it would happen, and Biden is a well-known supporter of the death penalty, so I don't think we would see Biden appoint a death penalty abolitionist either, and that would be one of my red lines for a Supreme Court justice. If I was president, my red lines would be friend of labor unions and of the working class, friend of LGBTQIA rights and supporter of them, ardent death penalty abolitionist, and opponent of Citizens United. Those would be my red lines. And I don't think Biden is going to have pretty much any of those red lines, except maybe on the women's and LGBTQ issues. It's just not realistic. So that is a very real you know, issue with the idea that if we vote for Biden, it's not really voting for Biden, it's voting for the Supreme Court. I think that what we're really voting for there is just more moderates on the Supreme Court. We're voting for getting another Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court, not for forgetting uh, Cornell West. And I'm going to keep using him as my ideal candidate for the Supreme Court because he would be awesome at it. But, you know, it is also worth taking into consideration that it, those would at least be slightly, slightly, very slightly better than a Brett Kavanaugh. Then the other main argument that they do make is that Because Trump is so bad, so dangerous, uh, so far right, we have to get him out of office. That is our number one priority. And I agree that Trump needs to go. He is, that is why I was so big on the Bernie train. You know, that's why I was campaigning so hard for Bernie and why I'm now running to be a Bernie delegate. Bernie was the best option we had to get rid of Donald Trump, in my opinion. I think Joe Biden is making the same mistakes, and I think he is about to doom us to another four years of Trump, unless think this economic crisis and the COVID crisis could sink Trump. That is a very real possibility, but I'm not gonna get too optimistic about that. But would Biden be better is the question we then need to ask ourselves. If our priority is getting Trump out, we do have to ask, would Biden really be that m- much better than Trump? And I think in some areas, potentially, and others, no. In other ways, he would just represent the same things that led to getting us Donald Trump in the first place. You know, Don- Joe Biden has consistently been on the right of the Democratic Party since he started his career in the Senate, and he would not really be interested in correcting the fundamental, structural, institutional failures and the other inadequacies inherent to liberalism that got us Donald Trump in the first place. You know, I don't think that is very realistic. That's why I was always a little hesitant on the impeachment stuff. I meant to do a podcast about that one, but uh, school got in the way. And it's important to remember that Joe Biden would not be a way for us to advance our goals and our agenda and the things that we've been fighting for. It would be a very difficult situation because Joe Biden would not really be our ally. We wouldn't have an ally in the White House like we would have had with Bernie Sanders. We would be up against, we would still be in opposition. You know, we would not be in the halls of power ourselves. We would be in opposition. We would be maybe an administration that would be less confrontational to us, or overtly confrontational to us, but very much on the other side of the issues from us. Joe Biden has said he would veto Medicare for All. He has not pledged to support a Green New Deal. These are issues that Joe Biden is very much on the wrong side of, and then on issues related to the Cuban embargo and on Palestine, for example, he's on the exact opposite side of the issue. Joe Biden has recently said that he supports maintaining the Cuban embargo and has been actually criticizing things like Cuba's appointment to the Human Rights Council At the United Nations, a position they actually held during the Obama administration, I might add, and Obama was, you know, Obama and Pope Francis worked together very heavily on normalizing relations with Cuba. If you go back and watch my speech in Canada that I gave in uh, February 2018, where I directly addressed the Cuban diplomats that were in the room that were speaking at the same event that I was and I said I fully oppose the Trump administration's moves to roll back the clock on normalization of relations, and I support restoring the normalization of relations. I also said some other things as well. I think it's pretty clear Joe Biden has no intention of pursuing that, and I think that was one of the best foreign policy moves that the Obama administration made during his entire tenure, and it's sad that it came at the very end. Ending the Cuban embargo is a fundamental foreign policy objective that we have, because even if you don't support Cuba, Cuba. Even if you have very strong reservations or criticisms of the Cuban government, and I have some criticisms of the Cuban government myself in relation to issues of freedom of speech and political organization and independent labor unions, for example, you know, even if you don't fullheartedly support the Cuban government, really have to agree that the Cuban embargo has been a humanitarian and political disaster. It has utterly failed at accomplishing any of its objectives. It's been there for over half a century now. And it has not worked at all. It has not brought down the government of Cuba that was set up after the revolution. And at the humanitarian level, it's been an utter disaster. The embargo has been nothing short of a crime committed by this government against the Cuban people. And it has to be ended. And the fact that Joe Biden is not even agreeing with his own boss, his former boss, on this issue is very disturbing. And then his position on Palestine is not good either. He is a proponent of the two-state solution, which I would add I don't think is a real realistic solution anymore. The one-state solution, a binational solution is the only option at this point. You know, Joe Biden is a vocal opponent of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, one of the only things that is actually putting pressure on the Israeli government to respect the human rights of the Palestinian people and He has said that both sides are to blame for the conflict, which is utterly ridiculous. The conflict shouldn't even really be called a conflict. It's an occupation. The violence is the result of the occupation and aggression by the state of Israel against the Palestinian people. Well, I don't groups like Hamas or the Islamic Jihad or, you know, these reactionary groups, their actions are fundamentally... An outgrowth of the occupation, they are resistance to the occupation. I would, I support progressive opposition forces in Palestine, but I do not support and do not support uh, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, for example. But I understand where they're coming from, and the injustices imposed on the Palestinian people have to end. And the fact that Biden is not willing to stand up for their rights, for the rights of the Palestinian people, is deeply concerning. And it would not really mark any sort of a change. From Trump, I believe Trump or Biden has said that he would not move the embassy out of Jerusalem. So a lot on a lot of these issues, you know, these foreign policy issues that are probably the most obvious ones. But then on domestic policy issues, Green New Deal, Medicare for All, etc., we would still be, we would not have any progress. We would not make any steps forward. Really, uh, we would be basically in the same position that we are now, in my opinion, because we would not have a friendly administration or a friendly even a conciliatory administration, you know, not necessarily a friendly one, but one that is willing to work with us, Biden is very much against what we stand for. I would call him anti-socialist, and I think he would agree with that statement. So, you know, on that front, he is very much not our candidate. That being said, let's look at the other side of the argument. Those who say socialists shouldn't support Joe Biden, and we should support a third party, So should we vote for a third party? People that say this say, well, we need to support a third party. We need to organize for these third parties so we can have a real political alternative to the Democrats. We need to help get them to 5% so they can get federal matching funds or, you know, make an even bigger impact by pushing the agenda to the left by getting an ex-third party candidate a large number of votes. Now, I think there is something to be said for this. Uh, Just the there's nothing necessarily untrue about these statements. You know, getting a, third party, like the Green Party, 5% of the vote, that would make them much more viable in future elections, because it would get them federal matching funds for the next election. Now, the big problem with this is we've seen parties get 5% of the vote and federal matching funds before, and it didn't really amount to anything. The last time this happened was the Reform Party in 1996, when Ross Perot got about 8% of the vote. But... What happened after 1996? What happened in the run-up to the 2000 election? Well, the party began infighting, and then it fractured. They nominated Pat Buchanan, who was alienating to a lot of their members, their highest-ranking elected official in the country, Jesse Ventura, the governor of Minnesota, and his entire branch of the Reform Party. They resigned and formed the Independence Party of Minnesota, and their money was just squandered. They're now a relic. They have nine other elected officials across the country at very low-level offices, and there are 5,294 members nationwide, and that's admittedly probably outdated information. I'm sure that they have fewer members now. They have not been in any way significant since getting above 5% in a presidential election and receiving FEC matching funds. So getting 5% of the vote and FEC matching funds isn't a guarantee that you'll be able to constitute a real significant political force in American politics if anything it means you know you just have some extra money for the next presidential election because having a third party is a lot harder than getting 5% and getting federal matching funds you have to have a strong organizational structure and you have to have a committed membership and you have to have a good strategy and a good message to be quite blunt about it i don't think the green party would really be able to make the most of having that 5% of the vote in the federal matching funds. And I say this out of my personal experiences with the Green Party, as some of you may be aware, after Bernie dropped out of the uh, 2016 presidential election and uh, conceded Hillary Clinton, I joined the Green Party. I supported Jill Stein. You know, I supported, uh, and I supported a uh, local candidate for state representative on the Missouri side of the state line, admittedly, and, you know, helped campaign for some of their other candidates as well. And gave money to the Green Party and all of that, and I, you know, flew a Green Party flag at some protest right after Trump was elected, and, you know, I was involved in the Green Party, let's just be blunt about it, but a lot of their organizing happens online. You know, it's a lot of it's through Facebook groups and the like, and in addition to, you know, local meetings and stuff, but it was those online organizing activities is what ultimately alienated me from the Green Party and led me to leave the Green Party altogether and pursue what's more of a dirty break strategy with the Democrats. The Green Party is organizationally quite dysfunctional. They have a very poor national strategy, in my opinion, and this is partially not their fault. Part of it is because a lot of their strategy is focused on ballot access, and our current ballot access laws heavily disenfranchise third parties. And as a result, third parties spend most of their time and organizing efforts in maintaining their ballot lines outside of the states where they have basically permanent ballot access, and I mean California and New York and the like. And even in their less ballot access-oriented activities, they're not a very effective organization. They have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of naivete among their organizers, while well, they have experienced organizers within them as well, a lot of their experienced organizers have come out of third parties. They aren't experienced Democrats who became disillusioned with the ideological direction of the Democratic Party. These A lot of their very experienced organizers, you know, their oldest organizers came out of other third parties and, you know, from the, th- from the Green Party itself, in a lot of cases. You don't see a lot of former high-profile Democrats joining and leaving the Green Party, then they also have some very unique views, and I'm not just referring to the views express, expressed in the national platform. I, within the national platform, there are some very weird, uh, to say the least, views. Some of them are consistent with the ideology of green parties around the world, their opposition to GMOs, for example, which is largely based in pseudoscience, but... That's the tip of the iceberg. In addition, they also endorse a policy they call greening the dollar, which is based on this sort of pseudo-economics, where they propose a debt-free money, which is, you know, that's just not a thing. All money is debt. You know, Keynes was saying this, Marx was saying this, all money is debt. I think everyone has agreed on that, except fringe theorists. Their whole currency system is kind of ridiculous, and a very weird and obscure policy that no one in the world of economics, even Marxians and left-wing economists, none of them really support it. And then among the rank and file, you also get a lot of just kooky views, and this definitely spills over into their organizing and their activism, and at times into the national platform as well a lot of green party people are very into the new age type stuff, new age woo, things like that. So they're very into homeopathy, they're very into alternate so-called alternative medicines or as you know, scientists call them not medicine. A lot you know, and this actually there actually was a line in the Green Party's national platform about this for a while until it was taken out in 2016 that they would endorse as part of their healthcare policy a system that would include homeopathy, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, chiropractic, all of this debunked pseudoscience, and, you know, whenever I would bring this up in Green Party spaces, back when I was in there, I would always get attacked for it. Then there's also a large contingent of conspiracy theorists within the Green Party. You know, you have a lot of them that are very heavily into 9-11 conspiracy theories, and also into chemtrails. Uh, in one Green Party chapter, I don't remember where, but I remember hearing about it from a fellow former Green, was their local chapter decide they were going to organize primarily around the issue of chemtrails. Chemtrails aren't real, you know, and while that's not a national policy, the fact that a local Green Party organization was organizing around it does not reflect well on the organization as a whole. And then other things that alienated me heavily from the Green Party was there was a lot of anti-Semitism within the Green Party. People would use the word Rothschild. As a catch-all for you know bad things in the world, which is a probably the single most common anti-Semitic dog whistle in the world today. Others would frequently just use the word Zionist as you know in conversations that had nothing to do with Israel, Palestine, and you know as I'm pretty sure you're well aware, whenever that comes up, it's us- what they're usually just talking about is Jewish people. That was deeply concerning to me, and well. And then also uh, anti-vaxxers. Well, that is not a party policy, and actually the uh, organizers of like these online Green Party spaces try to prevent conversation about anti-vaccine sentiment when and where they can. It's still a very common view held among the rank and file. You know, neither Howie Hawkins nor Jill Stein were or are anti-vaxxers. Howie Hawkins in particular has not done a very good job of alienating it, and you can tell by the fact that they wouldn't Full-on come out and say they don't believe in, you know, they wouldn't call it pseudoscience, they wouldn't call it a conspiracy theory, anything like that. The reason they did that was pretty clearly because they didn't want to alienate those among the Green Party base who believe in those conspiracy theories. They were trying to accommodate them as best they could. And, you know, all parties do that, but the fact that they're having to do that within their own party is deeply concerning to those of us who are against the Spread of pseudoscience and I might add the spread of disease. So that is not a good thing. And this is, you know, among the reasons that I left the Green Party. I don't think the Green Party is going to be this left alternative that I think a lot of people advocating a vote for the Green Party think it's going to be. We ought to be very real and blunt about that voting for Howie Hawkins trying to get him to 5% of the vote is not going to bring about a left alternative in the United States that can challenge the Democrats. They are organizationally dysfunctional. Their strategy is based too much on ballot access laws. Admittedly, that isn't their fault. And, you know, within the party, there are just some utterly insane views that have no basis in reality, and some of which are actively harmful and dangerous. And I'm again referring to anti-vaccine sentiment and anti-Semitism. So, you know the green party is in my opinion not uh, the vehicle for change in the united states i think while we do need a left alternative and an independent workers party in the united states the green party is not going to be that that party so those are the problems with the green party and i'm not completely against them and all their activists there are good people within the green party too and howie hawkins is a good is a good man you know i think he's a good socialist and someone i definitely would Would consider voting for, I don't think that they're really a viable option, and I would not put my faith in them as a political alternative to the Democrats. The other party that I've seen some socialists advocate uh, we support as an alternative to both the Greens and to the Democrats is the Party for Socialism and Liberation, aka the PSL, and their candidate Gloria Lariva. For a little background, the Party for Socialism and Liberation is one of the newer large ish groups of the American left, and I say large ish because they're not huge. Uh, you probably know them most from their role within the Answer Coalition, the anti-war group. And they were founded as a breakaway faction of the Workers' World Party, which was itself a split from the Socialist Workers' Party, but they're not a Trotskyist organization. They're Marcyite, is what it's usually called, named after the guy who started it, Sam Marcy. And they've moved, they started as kind of a pro-Soviet, pro, like a tanky Trotskyism, you might say. And since then they've moved towards just a bit more regular Marxism-Leninism. But there's definitely some distinctions be- between them and other marxist leninist parties that stem from their origins. But they're definitely a tanky party, for lack of a better term. And I know some people do not like that term, but I think it's an accurate description of them. They're very supportive of North Korea. They're very supportive of Cuba. They're very defensive about the former Soviet Union. They have a generally positive view of Mao, for example. They also defend what are very explicitly non-socialist uh, governments and regimes – simply on the grounds that they're anti-United States, uh, such as Russia under Putin and the government of Iran. They're also very pro-Assad in Syria. They're a lot like the Grey Zone Project in that, in that way. So to say that their foreign policy views are a little troubling at times is, is accurate, I would say. Their domestic policy views are pretty bog-standard, left-wing, socialist talking points, single-payer healthcare, strong combating of climate change, you know, and actually one interesting thing is they they know they're not going to be the next president, but their vice presidential nominee is Leonard Peltier, who I'm sure many of you may have heard of, the indigenous rights activist, former member of the American Indian Movement, who is in prison on nonsense murder charges, something that for a crime he did not commit. And the reason that he's their nominee for vice president is because they're trying to promote him and get him released from prison. I support that initiative that they're doing. I support his release from prison immediately. I will also say for PSL and Gloria Lariva, is during a third party candidates forum earlier this year, when they were asked about vaccines, only a couple candidates were very open about vaccines are good, referred to the anti vax movement as based on fake news and misinformation and pseudoscience, and Gloria Lariva was one of them. And that is a very good thing. The fact that she is better on that, on science issues at least, than the Green Party is a point in her favor. That being said, The Party for Socialism and Liberation is definitely not the vehicle for advancing socialism in the United States, and that is why I'm not a member. But the biggest reasons why I say this are, one, their very pro-authoritarian position in regards to other regimes, uh, if and only if they're anti-American. So this is why they defend North Korea, why they defend China, why they defend Russia, why they defend Iran and Syria, even though, you know, some of those regimes don't even have a veneer of left-wing ideology to them. They are fundamentally right-wing reactionary regimes. Not all, I will admit, but you know some of the ones they support. And their defense of them strays into straight-up denialism very often. They deny the massacre in Tiananmen Square and other atrocities carried out by these regimes. And personally, I find this very concerning and not a good precedent for the kind of socialism that they're promoting. The other reason I say they're not going to be a very significant party ever is their size. They are a very small organization. Apart from a presence in a few major cities, Washington, D.C., where I have personally encountered them when I visited there, Chicago, San Francisco, and the Bay Area, Los Angeles, uh, New York, etc., big metropolitan areas, they don't really have a presence. They don't have a presence in the lower Midwest, for example. I think they have a branch in St. Louis uh, with a handful of members. But they have no branch in Kansas City or anywhere in Kansas, to the best of my knowledge. I think uh, as far as write-in votes went, they got only like four or five write-in votes in uh, 2016 in Kansas. So I would put even less hope in them as being able to constitute a progressive alternative to the Democrats, even more so than the Green Party. They are a minuscule pro-authoritarian party. And they're not going to garner a whole lot of support in the United States in really any area. So the third party alternatives to Joe Biden are not particularly great as far as, you know, the options we've got. Uh, but Joe Biden's not a good option either. So I would personally advise a, you know, maybe a strategic voting or vote trading possibility as what I would do. I am not going to say how I plan to vote myself. I may vote for Joe Biden. I may vote for Howie Hawkins. I probably won't vote for Gloria Lariva. But I'm not going to say how I plan to vote because I think that the bigger question for the left shouldn't be, should we support Joe Biden? Should we support Howie Hawkins? Should we support Gloria Lariva? It should be, what are we going to do now? I don't really think that we have a role to play in this presidential election going forward now that Bernie's out. Bernie was the only real viable candidate that the left had. And that didn't work out. So going forward, I think we're going to have, through the rest of the year, we're going to really have to focus our efforts on campaigns where we can have an impact and be more effective. So I'm talking down-ballot campaigns. I'm talking non-electoral efforts. I'm talking labor organizing. I'm talking mutual aid. I'm talking these local races and congressional races, things like that. I really don't think that we have much of a role to play in this presidential election going forward like we had during the primaries. I think that our role now is going to be in other areas, we're going to need to continue building this movement. We're going to need to take that energy that was around Bernie and that Bernie helped inspire, and we need to get those organized. We need to get them involved in other areas and other campaigns and other efforts. And that's how we're going to effectively make a change in 2020 and and in the years to come. I'm not going to talk about 2024 and AOC for president in that election because still got 2020 to deal with. Let's get Rashida Tlaib reelected first. She's facing a primary. So let's focus on that. <laughs> on those efforts before we even consider talking about 2024. And in the interim, we've got a strike wave going on. We've got tenants unions forming. We've got a lot to do right now, and the presidential election is at best going to be a distraction for us. I would encourage everyone to vote in the presidential election, but I would encourage you to spend your time organizing and mobilizing in other areas, because the presidential election isn't going to be where we have a big impact in 2020, because our options are an anti-socialist, a... Large, but fairly marginal third party with a lot of internal issues, and a very marginal third party. Those are the options that we got, so we're going to have to find other areas to insert ourselves and to work on where we can have more of an impact than the presidential race going forward. That being said, I am running to be one of Bernie Sanders' delegates, so please vote for me in that. That election is happening at the end of this week. I'd appreciate your support there if you live in the Kansas 3rd District. But I think that the convention will mark the end of the role that the left can play in the presidential election in any real capacity. You know, we're not going to impact the race any way beyond that. How you vote in this presidential election, if I was in a swing state, I probably would be voting for Biden, uh, but I probably would not be happy about it. You know, I'm in a safe state, so I could vote for Biden, I could vote for Howie Hawkins, I could vote for Gloria LaRiva. The outcome in this state is going to be utterly the same. Trump is going to win Kansas by at least 15 points. So there isn't really any role that I can play through this podcast or in my organizing activities to impact the presidential election, because the state is not in play. Where it is in play, though, is in the Senate. Chris Kobach is. I did a video about him when he was running for governor, and I said he must be stopped at all costs. He's now running for the United States Senate. We stopped his gubernatorial campaign. I was so happy when I saw that. You know, I was tweeting out, This Machine Kills Fascists, with a picture of the Kansas flag, and I was overjoyed then, but now he's back and he wants a Senate seat, and Kansas has a pretty bad track record when it comes to sending Democrats to the United States Senate, so it's important that we organize and we mobilize and we stop Kobach. Even if I'm not a huge fan of Barbara Bollier, his main opponent, or really his only opponent on the Democratic side as of now, because the main progressive candidate who was running against him, Usha Reddy, recently dropped out, Bollier... I may not like her, but she is the only way that we're going to stop Kobach because we cannot allow this man to go into the Senate. And it's not like the presidency where there's an electoral college or something. Our votes count in every county, in every municipality, at every polling station in Kansas. Our votes count. That's the race that I'm going to be very heavily concerned on. Kobach is a fascist, and he must be stopped at all costs. Another race I'll be focusing heavily on from now till November is going to be the state Senate race here in the 10th Senate District in Kansas. The incumbent is a guy named Mike Thompson. He's a right-wing nutcase. He's a climate denier, and he wasn't even elected to the seat. He was appointed to fill a seat that was vacated by the previous incumbent, Mary Pilcher Cook, who was even more insane and but I think he's probably more dangerous because he actually is a good public speaker. He knows how to debate. He doesn't shirk away from questions like Mary Pilcher Cook did, and that makes him even more dangerous than she was. So I want to get him out of the State House at all costs, and I will be heavily supporting Lindsey Constance, the Democratic challenger to Mike Thompson in this district, because she is the only chance we have for getting things like Medicaid expansion passed through the State House. Because otherwise, you know, we're leaving it to this far right wing ultra conservative clique that basically dominates the state house and has been preventing any semblance of real positive change from happening in the state. Be it Medicaid expansion, increasing funding for schools. All these issues have been blocked by this right wing clique that Mike Thompson is a part of. And I want to get them out of office. I'll also be focusing my efforts on non-electoral activities, labor solidarity and labor organizing activities, helping out tenants groups like KC Tenants. I will be doing efforts on these issues and these campaigns more than I will be focusing on the presidential campaign because I can have a real impact there and I think every socialist, every leftist in the United States has to be focusing our energies and our efforts and our resources and our money where we can go. I don't think that we should be As organizations endorsing third-party candidates like Howie Hawkins for the presidency, because it would just be a waste of time, money, energy, and resources, and we shouldn't be doing it for Biden either, because he fundamentally stands for what we oppose, and we shouldn't be spending our money towards that. So, that is the situation I think we're faced with. I think we need to focus our energy where we can be most effective, and that's not the presidential race. I know it's not as glamorous as the presidential race. That's where all the attention goes, that's where all the media goes, but we need to focus our efforts in more effective places that aren't the presidency. We're not going to win the White House. Sorry, guys. You know, we we lost, and it pains me to say that. You know, I am a, running to be a Bernie delegate, but we didn't succeed. We did not get Bernie the nomination, and so now we got to focus our efforts where we can do. And that's what the whole message of not me, us, that Bernie was campaigning on, was all about. It's about building a movement. And that's what we can do now. You know, We don't need the presidential campaign to build this movement. We just need each other. You know, We need groups like DSA. We need gr- groups like Sunrise. We need groups like KC Tenants. We need all these organizations. We need to come together and we need to continue building and mobilizing and fighting for these issues and for these things that we need. Because that's the only way we're going to make change. We're not going to make it through the presidential election this year, but we're going to make it through these grassroots efforts, through these non-electoral campaigns, and through down-ballot campaigns. That's where we're going to have an impact, and that's where we're going to make a change, and that's what we need to be focusing on. So, that is my take on the question of should socialists support Joe Biden? I think that whether or not we support Joe Biden doesn't matter. As long as we focus our energy, resources, time, and money to campaigns and activities that will build power for the working class, that will allow us to make real, radical, progressive, left wing change in this country, and allow us to prepare for what comes next, because we're not going to win the White House, whether we like it or not. We need to mobilize in other areas now, and we need to continue organizing and fighting in these areas until we win. So that's just my hot take on the issue. If you're a little disappointed by the fact I didn't openly endorse a candidate, especially if it's not your candidate, sorry. But, you know, I think that. We all have more important things to focus on than the presidential election anyways. But thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Sunflower Socialist Podcast. I'll be making more episodes very soon. I'm looking at doing some episodes that are a bit more education-focused instead of commentary-focused. And I'm also going to be making some more videos soon. I'm working on a few scripts right now. And I also do live streams pretty regularly on my YouTube channel. So please be sure to go check out that. And if you like this podcast, if you like my YouTube channel, please be sure to give me some support on Patreon. and. You know, that will allow me to improve my production quality and my output of content because capitalism sucks. So I could use whatever support you can give me. Even if it's just a dollar, please go to Patreon and support me there. Thank you so much. And as always, solidarity.